everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of U2 podcast, where two longtime fans discuss U2 music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience, and the perception of U2 and cultural consciousness. Right. Melanie and I, we came of age with U2. We saw it all happen in real time, and as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So, as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time, or are the haters right after all? Well, Bill. Yes. We're here to talk about an album that's so steeped in U2 lore, it's become mystical. Mm -hmm. Books have been written about it. Documentaries have been made. It's the one that almost broke the band up but ended up saving their career. The band have called it the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree. And of course, I'm referring to Octung Baby. Nope. Um, because the making of this album is such famously covered territory, what you and I have decided to do is provide an outline on the history of the making of the album, but really focus in on some questions that we found ourselves asking as we were doing our research. And how about you kick that off? Okay, well, we know the story. It's December 30th, 1989, night three of U2's four-night stand at the Point Depot in Dublin at the end of the Love Town tour. And during the encore, Bono says, we're going to have to go away for a while and dream it all up again. Right. And of course, this is happening at the very end of the promotion for Rattle and Hum, um, which has been a crushing critical failure, uh, the film also being a massive commercial failure. Um all of which was played out in the eye of, you know, a, a massive media blitz. Uh, the band were overexposed and on the verge of becoming parodies of themselves, with Bono in particular being called out as being a uh, megalomaniacal prat. Ouch. <laughs> and yet so accurate. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when the Love Town tour finally ended 12 days later in Rotterdam, uh, the band were fed up with playing their hits, and they headed home, not sure which way to turn. And that, I think, brings us to our first question. What exactly happened between the end of the Love Town tour in January 1990 and the band taking that last flight into what was then East Germany on October 3rd, 1990, to begin the recording sessions at Hansa Studios in Berlin? Well, first, let's consider Bono's mindset when he got home from Lovetown. So let's remember, um, Rattle and Hum had been Bono's folly. He was the driving force into the deep dive into Americana, um, and he was largely responsible for why the criticism of the film Rattle and Hum became so incredibly personal. Let's also remember when you 2 left Dublin at, at the beginning of the decade to go conquer the world, they were basically a punk band. Then they come home at the end of the decade in cowboy hats with a horn section, backup singers, looking like a showbiz band. And by Bono's own admission, not a very good version of it at that. U2 had become the biggest band in the world, but Bono knew they weren't the best band. Bono said that when he came home to Allie, she said to him, what's happened to you? He becomes so serious. The boy I fell in love with was so full of mischief, so full of madness. Uh, you were a much more experimental character. And so, uh, Melody, why don't we bookmark that, shall we? We shall. 
Um, and, and, you know, and Bono's life had changed significantly since the recording and filming of Rattle and Hum. He and Allie had had their first child a few months prior to the Love Town tour. And once he got home from that tour, they bought a home in France and spent some time enjoying, enjoying domesticity. Um, the idea of domesticity is another thing we need to bookmark for later as well. Yes. Um, but this family bliss was in stark contrast um, to Edge's life, whose troubled marriage had disintegrated and he had moved out of the family home. Exactly. I mean, Edge doesn't want the band to go on hiatus for a year or two. He wants to get lost in the next thing. Now, don't forget, Edge was never a believer in U2's foray into Roots music. The past three years had been a, a struggle for identity. And while the Joshua Tree largely succeeded because the tension between Bono's push for American influences and Edge's own uh, European-centric elements, um, Rattle and Hum, on the other hand, proved to be a dead end creatively. And so it was for you too at this moment, change or die, but become what? Now, not even a month after the end of the Love Town tour, Edge calls up Bono and tells him he's got ideas about where to take things tells him he's been listening to industrial music like KMFDM, Young Gods, Nine Inch Nails. Bono is intrigued. They talk about the Madchester scene with bands like Happy Mondays, Jesus Jones, Stone Roses, uh, who are merging, you know, the burgeoning uh, rave scene with hip-hop and dance music. But unlike four years earlier when they were about to start recording The Joshua Tree, Bono was not only hell-bent on going Americana, but he'd also proven to be, to that point, pretty much right on every creative instinct. But the harsh criticism of Rattle and Hum had shaken him. But Edge, now he's earned some creative cachet. So when he tells Bono, let's shift things back to Europe, Bono is on board. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I think that you can also look back at the mixing of Rattle and Hum for a moment. Um, Edge has said that he did most of the work during that mix when the band were living in Los Angeles, um, when the rest of the guys were off partying, um, he was working. And I've always thought I don't, that, you know, this could have been the beginning of him saying, I'm doing the heavy lifting in the studio. So maybe it's time I start asserting leadership musically. But whatever happened, it's clear that the band were done with the whole Americana roots thing. No question. And by the way, I, I found this quote from Edge. I think it's very interesting. He said, and I quote, my view was that Rattle and Hum, for all its traditionalism, is actually our experimental record and Octung Baby got us back to our normality, making dark, very European music with experimental sounds. But as I want to do, Melody, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? <laughs> well, you can certainly hear the seeds of what was to come in a project that Edge took on, which was writing the score for a stage adaptation of A Clockwork Orange, um, done by the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, which had its opening in April of 1990. Um, sometime during the Love Town tour, Edge had asked Bono to join him in the writing, notably without Adam and Larry. Um, the score was completed in early 1990. We only have the recording of a medley of two pieces called Alex Descends into Hell for a Bottle of Milk and um, uh, Karova. But in this, you can hear the industrial influences along with the hip hop beat. And there's also this um, gothic choral thing going on, all of which points to where they were going. 
at least as so far as Edge and Bono were concerned. So why don't we go ahead and take a listen to that? Yeah, let's. I actually really love this piece. Me by too. The way. All right, let's take a listen. Then there's the cover of Cole Porter's Night and Day for the Red Hot and Blue AIDS charity record, which personally I think was a Bono and Edge project that they were probably pressured into having the U2 name on it. Um, and I think this is supported by the fact that the song is driven by a drum machine and conga loops and electronic bass. So who really knows just how much Adam and Larry actually contributed um, and in any case, um, the Twilight remix of Night and Day, done by Killing Jokes bassist uh, Martin Glover, a.k.a. Youth, um, I think has a big influence on Bono and Edge so far as incorporating dance and electronica moving forward. You know, like how to apply the building block approach to dynamics employed and uh, hip hop, you know, like popping the drums in or, or the bass in and out and layering other elements little by little, which they employed not only on Night and Day, but on Zoo Station and in Mysterious Ways, among others. Um, in fact, let's take a listen to Night and Day, shall we? Then sometime in mid-1990, the band heads into STS Studios in Dublin to work on some demos for the upcoming album. Well, uh, it's actually a bit murky um, if Adam and Larry were involved or how much they were involved with the demos. Since both Adam and Larry have said they were blindsided by Edge and Bono's musical direction when they got to Hansa. I mean, Larry has said he was studying Ginger Baker and John Bonham to prepare for the record. Um, so I think it's doubtful that they were involved. But during those sessions, Lady with the Spinning Head was recorded. Right. And uh, that is clearly inspired by what was happening in Manchester. Again, reference points being Happy Mondays, Charlatans UK and Spiral Carpets, among others. And I'd also like to add... Uh, you know, Melody, I was going to bring this up to you. You know, during mm. this time period, 1990, you turn on pop radio, um, and it seemed like everyone was using that kind of dance beat, you know, and cross-referencing uh, hip-hop. I mean, remember D-Light's Groove is in the Heart? Groove is in the Heart. Oh, thank you. I was hoping <laughs> you'd do that. <laughs> I put that one on a T for you. <laughs> that and Soup Dragons, I'm free to yeah. do what I want. You know, that pop, you know, that sort of beat. All right, I digress. Um, anyway, Edge had said that they tried long and hard, but couldn't get Lady with a Spinning Head to come together. But he said what often happens when you two struggles to finish a song is they end up doing what they call cell division, where you start with one song and end up with, uh, you know, three others. And in this case, Lady with a Spinning Head spawned Zustation, The Fly, and Ultraviolet, which is a pretty good return when you think about it. It is indeed. <laughs> 
Um, let's give a listen to Lady with the Spinning Head, shall we? So, Bill, that brings us to our next big question. Um, Why were Adam and Larry left out in the cold? Well, I think there's a number of possibilities, but one is, uh, according to a book that calls itself the definitive YouTube biography, written by a chap called John Jobling, prior to the making of Octon Baby, Bono and Edge being principal songwriters, supposedly had grown resentful over the fact that they made the same amount of money as their three partners despite contributing more and remember from day one one of those partners sharing equally was manager paul mcginnis uh this was done to avoid dissension um allegedly they accused mcginnis of neglecting the band to pursue business interests in hollywood and television uh which to me is plausible as we covered this uh in the Rallin hum episode so this does make some sense um in any case mcginnis so the book claims protected his position and generous slice of the pie by questioning in particular adam's level of input Certainly, if true, this is a pretty remarkable development, signaling a shift in relations, values, and power. You know, Bill, I know that you'll agree with me um, that we need to stop for just a moment for full disclosure. Um, The book that you are referring to is an unauthorized biography of the band. Mm -hmm. This one I haven't read myself, but it's we both know it's pretty controversial in You Too Dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do know that some of the sources used for the book are suspect. However, this theory about money, the money issue is frankly pretty common. Um, It arises amongst bands all the time and is typically what breaks them up. Um, But since we can't substantiate it, we'll slap a big rumor warning label on it. True and fair enough. But let's face it, if it had been an authorized book, you know, this kind of thing would never have been in there. Uh, Case in point, you two by you two. That is true. That's very true. Um, but you know, I mean, whether it was money or something else, clearly things had changed in the band's dynamic. Yeah. Whereas previously, uh, Bono and Edge would bring the outline of songs for the full band to work on together. Now they were changing the way in which Adam and Larry could contribute by laying down rhythm loops without their input. Yeah. And it's troubling to think, uh, they pulled this on Adam and Larry, if true. Um, Although you do have to wonder, did Bono and Edge blame Larry and Adam for some of the musical shortcomings they felt were exposed by the end of the Love Town tour? And did they think to themselves, even subconsciously, hey, do we have the rhythm section to pull off, you know, the rhythm-centric record that we want to make? Who knows, but it's fair to say some pretty significant dysfunction had set in, and considering Bono and Edge hadn't bothered to talk to Larry and Adam about their plans for the future, it does feel like a Bono and Edge power move had taken place. At the very least, a betrayal of the concept of a band. And let me tell you, and I know you know this, it's 
not easy to make magic under those set of circumstances. Now, we don't definitively know if a change up to the way the band split money was on the table, but we do know that Edge and Bono had changed the way they functioned collectively as a band. Yes. Um, the two of them were seeking new sources and ways of gaining creative inspiration. And for whatever reason, um, did not feel the need to loop Adam and Larry in. Because of this, there would have been tensions uh, recording the follow-up to Rattle and Hum, no matter where it had been recorded. But I do think that brings us to our next question, right, Bill? Right. So let's consider. Why did they want to record in Berlin, and what did they find when they got there? Well, the band had decided that they wanted to record away from home for this record. The phrase, uh, domesticity is the enemy of rock and roll, was tossed around um, the band as a sort of explanation of this necessity. And while I do think that a change of scene and getting away from home can inspire creativity, I think in this case, it was also about getting away or running away from domestic strife, at least in Edge's case. Um, but you know that expression, wherever you go, there you are. I think that applies here. True. And it certainly did creep heavily into the lyrics, but we'll get there, won't we? We will. Um, so anyway, you know, Bono and Edge, they'd been listening to and had been inspired by, as we've been talking about, a lot of German dance and industrial music. So it makes sense that they would be inclined to consider Germany. And at that point in history, Berlin was electrified as a crossroads of historic political change. Right. I mean, the idea of recording in Berlin made a lot of sense. Here was a once fractured city in the midst of profound changes since the Berlin Wall came down almost exactly a year before. Um, you know, the wall, the symbol of repression. And, and now this is a place where history could be felt and observed as um, almost a physical force. But Melody, you too, was in for a rude awakening when they landed on October 3rd, 1990. Now, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, Bono has told the story that the band were on the last flight to touch down in East Germany prior to um, German reunification. Um, and on that night, there were parties in the streets as people were celebrating. Um, excited to be in the city at such a momentous occasion, the band members joined one of the street marches. Uh, but they realized something was wrong as the group of people looked quite dour. And what had happened is that they had joined a group of Communist Party members protesting unification. Oopsie. Yeah, can you imagine the uh, the headline? <laughs> this just in, <laughs> Ernest, you too, protests end of communism. Yeah, it would have been great. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as amusing as all of this is, you can't help but think it was foreshadowing of their time in Berlin. Yeah, very much so. Um, because what they found was a confused, uh, emotionally ambivalent city instead of the what uh, kinetic wonderland they were expecting. Right. And one that was in the throes of an almost guerrilla consumerism as everything in the city was up for sale in the chaos of all the change. Um, emotional ambivalence and rampant consumerism. I think we might be seeing some themes come into focus, but I'm getting ahead of the story. So why don't we go ahead and get back to Berlinville? Yes. I mean, as most folks know, you two were also drawn to Berlin, specifically Hansa Studios, because of David Bowie's collaboration with Brian Eno, along with producer Tony Visconti, on the so-called Berlin Trilogy, done mostly at Hansa, 
that being the low heroes and loger records um hansa of course sat just a stone's throw from the berlin wall and the song heroes of course contains the great bowie uh, verse he wrote while looking out the window of hansa and notice a couple uh kissing near the wall I know this is a YouTube podcast, but let's take a listen to that. That it is so on point. Um, yeah. Here's heroes. All right. Uh, Bowie, of course, also produced uh, Iggy Pop's The Idiot and Lust for Life at Hansa. And Nick Cave's brilliant Tender Prey also must be mentioned because that was also done there, which was produced by Flood, who had a huge hand in Octoon Baby, uh, which we'll get to. But more than anything else, Melody, turning to Bowie, the artist, to show a pathway forward makes so much sense. U2 was at a crossroads and facing becoming irrelevant, largely because Rattle and Hum was the first time in their career they had been reductive rather than pushing forward. So, you know, more than anyone else, Bowie had always been the prime inspiration for Bono's restlessness and, you know, pathos to keep pushing from album to album. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um and and speaking of first inspirations, you had mentioned earlier, Bill, that you two had started as a, you know, sort of as a punk band at, at the beginning of their career and ended up maybe unrecognizable to themselves at the end of the Love Town Tour as a show band. Um, and I think that in going to Hansa, uh, going to a place where a lot of the music that had been important to them in their youth as fans when they were first starting out, they hoped that it would rekindle that initial spark that they had. Um, and one yeah. of the songs uh, that they worked on during the Octung Baby sessions, Oh Berlin, gets to the heart of the why Berlin question. Um, so why don't we go ahead and take a listen to one of the verses that I think sums that up. Uh, yeah, let's take a listen to it. Um, name check a lot of their heroes in there, don't they? They do indeed. <laughs> okay, let's give a listen. Chasing the ghosts of our heroes, Louie, David Bowie, Biggie, Ben Vendors, Milka, to change location rather than change yourself, to ask for directions rather than ask for help, but you may always a true fan. Now, the problem was Hansa Studios had become dilapidated and the ghosts were stirring from back when it used to be an SS ballroom. Melody, hard to make magic with Nazi ghosts everywhere, <laughs> don't you know? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So when the band and Daniel and Wah and Flood start recording all the bad vibes and inner band dysfunction hung like a mother over these sessions. <laughs> um, no wonder. Um, but what I find fascinating about the first couple months at Hansa was not just that they didn't get much of anything off the ground, but the fact that 
here was all this talk about using loops and incorporating elements of industrial music and whatnot. But when they get to Berlin, they're doing the same thing they always did, which they go into a tiny room and jam away endlessly. The difference is it sounds incredibly uninspired. And we know this because A, the band says so, and B, ultimately tapes are stolen from this period and you know, just hours of it. And frankly, it sounds pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Phil, those stolen tapes that you're talking about, they're later released in a bunch of different formats um, and versions between April 1991 and February 1992. Um, the, the most famous version of which is is released in February 1992 as a three-disc CD set called Salome, the Oxtong Bibi uh, outtakes. <laughs> right. I remember getting my hands on this bootleg, you know, still well before Octum Baby came out and thinking, well, this is pretty boring. <laughs> um, <laughs> rudderless would be a word I think I used. Uh, and my God, how many versions of Salome does anyone need to hear in a lifetime? <laughs> and Melody, if I had to listen to all those versions, and if you had to listen to all those versions, a reason our loyal listeners shouldn't have to listen to it again one more time. No, that that's true. I mean, I do think that we should play it just because it's interesting, sort of um, uh, as a musical excavation of sorts. Yeah. Um, but we do have to remember that, that these were stolen tapes, and Edge has said of them that it felt quite violating when they were released. But but I do think it's it's interesting um, in short in short bits. Well, but uh, you know they did put it out as like a b-side in one of those singles so it's not right, like right. it's like oh my god it's like precious like <laughs> so for christ's sake here's salome I, okay here's again salome. all right But getting back to to Berlin, um, the band is jamming together in Hansa, but it's clear that Bono and Edge don't want to compromise on their vision for the album. Uh, but at the same time, they are having a hard time explaining or convincing Adam and Larry um, that what they want to do is worthwhile. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've got uh, Adam and Larry, and to a degree, Danny Lenoir saying, why don't you just be you too? And you've got mm -hmm. Bon on Edge saying, uh, Larry and Adam, it's your deal. Pick it up, rhythm section. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, I think even they admitted after the fact they just didn't do a very good job explaining. They they knew what right. they didn't want to do, They but they couldn't explain what they did want to do. In any case, at one point, Larry's left behind at the hotel and says he feels marginalized and dictated to. Adam famously gets so fed up with Bono, blaming the rhythm section that he hands him his bass and tells him if he's such an expert, he can play the bass himself. <laughs> um, they jam endlessly. Danny Lenoir doesn't get what Bono and Edge are on about. He keeps trying to get you two to play to their strengths, but Bono refuses. They argue for hours, nearly come to blows. Everyone is in a bad mood. It's cold all the time, outside and colder inside, Melody. Yeah, and I mean, Larry, who I always tend to believe Larry <laughs> when he says stuff, um, he said um, that he thought the band was going to come to an end at this point. Yeah. You know? um, but then uh, Magic walked into the room 
And while they were working on a song that they were calling Sick Puppy, uh, which was an early version of Mysterious Ways, Edge was trying to come up with a different bridge and landed on something interesting. Yeah. And remarkably, you know, this is captured on tape. Um, this is the, of course, the centerpiece of From the Sky Down documentary. Yeah. Uh, the band is bashing away when Edge, you know, he deviates, as you said, from this sick puppy groove and lands on kind of a classic chord progression. Uh, and with 15 minutes, uh, we're shown they found the chorus and the basic melody structure for the song one the song that gives them some hope that they haven't lost it. Um, and it really is an extraordinary moment when you think about it. Uh, it quite literally turned things around and lifted the darkness. But what's truly remarkable about One is that's really the only song on Octune Baby that sounds the most like a classic YouTube ballad, sounds unlike anything else on Octune Baby. Uh, in any case, as it turns out, it, it wasn't technology or fancy production strokes or dance music that was going to lead the band out of what had infected the first couple months at Hansa. It could only be the kind of serendipitous moments of magic between the four of them in that tiny room that had always saved you two. All right. So they head home for Christmas, Melody, and they sit down and they clear the air. And Brian Eno, who we haven't mentioned much, He'd been hanging back during the strife in Berlin, but he's been monitoring things and they give him a tape to listen to where things are. And he tells them, actually, it's a lot better than they think. Yeah. And it's it, it, but I think it is worth noting that they come away from Hansa after two and a half months or so um, with only two songs, really um, yeah. one in mysterious ways. Yeah. Not exactly a good return on investment. However, many of the themes that would find their way onto the album, you know, consumerism, disunity, disloyalty, um, would, of course, have their origin in their time spent in Berlin. In February, uh, the band resumed recording in Ireland, renting a manor house called Elsinore, uh, which was located in the upper class suburb of Dalkey, a few miles south of Dublin and within walking distance of Bono and Edge's homes. You of think course, they you think they walked? Just I do think that they walked, but you know you what? Did. Actually, okay, I was when I think about that. <laughs> so who has to commute? Adam and Larry. Of course. They're, commuting. They're not walking. What the heck, man? Pick anyway. it up, rhythm section. You can carpool. <laughs> <laughs> so um so the Classic. band rechristened um Elsinore uh uh Dogtown. Uh because I guess there were some crappy dog kennels out front. Yeah. So it was Dogtown. Um, and from all accounts, recording and interpersonal relationships were much better um, at this point, which brings us, of course, to our last question. Why do things click when they get back to Dublin? Right. I mean, um, like I said, I, you know, they actually took time to talk to each other, something that obviously should have happened before Berlin. Right. Really bad move when you're, uh, you know, your bandmates feel like their input is completely unimportant right before you record an album. Right. I mean, it just feels like the making of Octune Baby was a concept and they set rules. And by they, I mean Bono and Edge before the band started recording. In any respect, before resuming recording in Dublin, they not only collectively talk about the band's direction going forward, but you know, they reconnect with the core idea of the band's friendship. As for Adam, 
for me, he solved the other's perception of his abilities himself by coming up with so many incredible baselines. I mean, the guy is groove central on Octoon Baby. Yep. I mean, Adam provides the sexual pulse for these songs. I mean, you, you have to admit. I Totally. And they also take some important steps to address Larry feeling marginalized. Flood had said in the end, they didn't use outside loops or drum machines. They looped Larry himself, then he'd play around or on top of his own creations. Kind of a brilliant compromise solution that also retained a degree of the human element. Um, so I think that was big and brought Larry back into the fold creatively. And, you know, Melody, I know, you know, there's that great scene in From the Sky Down where we see Larry at his drum stool uh, recording. I think it's his station. Mm -hmm. And you can just feel the joy in him. It's palpable. Such a huge contrast from how alienated he felt in Berlin. Yeah. What really I found remarkable was how generous he was with his creativity. Um, and, and, and speaking of that scene, it, it looks like the band are recording in two different locations hooked up by cameras and an audio feed um well i was researching uh dogtown and what was going on is the house's ballroom was set up as an open and informal recording environment so the band could be inspired and get that um live room feel that certainly daniel lenoir was really into um having a band have and something that they had been doing you too had been doing since the unforgettable fire um but a converted garage uh, uh was downstairs and was fashioned into a more formal recording studio with set up with isolation booths and that's where larry was um during the scene that you mentioned right um, the band recorded at Dogtown and also occasionally at the Edges Home studio from February to July of 1991. Um, the band's tinkerings and jams would be recorded every day with Lanois providing direction and Flood mixing the best bits every night. And then those mixes would be discussed and analyzed by the band the next day. Um, and Eno would come in monthly to provide fresh perspective. And I would just say, hold on, because we haven't really mentioned Eno much at all. Um, I think it's at this point forward, the move to Dublin, that is, where Eno's contribution becomes absolutely essential. Um, that fresh perspective you mentioned it was actually a huge part of how and why the band and the songs, which were in utero, uh, were liberated. And Octoon Baby then became such a focus and assured work. Um, so while Lenoir and Flood are in the trenches, um, Eno provides some what I think are, you know, indispensable kind of, you know, directional um, vision uh, that 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 gives Octoon Baby, you know, you know, this this assuredness. Um, but we'll touch a little bit more on that in the song by song analysis. So at, at the conclusion of the Dogtown sessions, um, the band moved to Windmill Lane. Um, where Eno Lenoir and Flood, as well as Steve Lillywhite, um, all did mixes of the songs so the band would have choices. Of course, this is a U2 album, so a lot more recording and mixing was done in the weeks leading up to uh, the recording deadline of September 21st. In fact, right even on September 21st, we are told. <laughs> right. Um, and, and somewhere during these sessions, U2's head of wardrobe, Fintan Fitzgerald brought in a funky pair of Superfly wraparound black shades, which Bono would put on and slip into character to give everyone a laugh during tense moments. And, you know, of course, we're going to talk about the fly 
later, but this simple prop was the beginning of visually focusing a lot of the record's vibe and lyrical themes. True. Uh, Bono said buzzwords on this record were trashy, throwaway, dark, sexy, and industrial. All good and earnest, polite, sweet, righteous, raucous, and linear, all bad. A lot was made about Octon Baby being this, you know, musical reinvention. But what's actually equally remarkable for me is Bono disposed of his own language he'd always relied upon and had crafted along the way. I'm speaking lyrically, of course, uh, because the lyrics to Octon Baby really don't resemble any U2 song up to this point. You know, point of view, language, and the incredibly personal nature of the subject matter are all on display. Yeah, and and I'll also add that he reinvented himself as a vocalist as well, which again is a very unusual and quite difficult thing to do. Very true. All right, Melody, we can get deeper into all of this while we talk about each song. So are you ready? Well, before we do, Hold I it. think, yes. Are, are you trying to tell me we're going to have am, a two-parter? I Well, at least. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> What it, breaking news? <laughs> Wait, how many parts? This this actually this might be three parts, Bill. We've got a lot to cover here. That's a lot of hot gas. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, people Every are just well that it really people is. are just quivering with excitement, Melody. <laughs> we have a lot of good stuff to say. Uh, okay, yes. If people yeah. have listened this far, they're they're probably interested. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Anybody out there? <laughs> Okay, but this sorry, is a go good ahead. spot to hit pause, though. Okay, fair um, enough. And we will leave our song-by-song song analysis for the next time on Into the Heart of YouTube podcast. 